Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, welcome to Texas True Crime. I'm your host, Jessica, and I am so glad that you're back with me. Now, I don't know about y'all, but our weather here in Texas has been pretty sucky lately, but I am so glad to see the sun today. I have to admit that I am a weenie when it comes to the cold weather, and it doesn't take much for it to drop below 70, and it's been rainy and in the 30s all week, so I'm so happy to have some pretty weather again. And I'm a little stuffy, so I apologize in advance because all this crazy weather has just kicked my allergies into overdrive, so I apologize up front if I'm a little stuffy. Anyway, now that you've gotten the weather report and heard all about my stuffiness, uh, let's get started. So in the early to mid 80s, Texas jails were overcrowded and the penal system was trying to save money and avoid building new prisons. So in their infinite wisdom, they decided that they should just start paroling inmates for good behavior. Now, the problem with this is they weren't that selective in who they decided to parole. And one of those inmates was Jerry Animal McFadden. Now, his self-chosen nickname, Animal, should probably give you a good heads up about what kind of a guy old Jerry was. He was a violent repeat offender. He was a big, wild-haired man covered in satanic tattoos. Now, I used that description because in all of my research, every time someone described him, that's what they would say in multiple sources. A big, wild-haired man covered in satanic tattoos. Sounds like a charmer, doesn't he? Now, he had a long history of mental instability and violent, and a violent, unpredictable temper. He dropped out of school in seventh grade. So, of course, this did not help either. His favorite pastime was to stalk women. And um, he was granted parole after serving less than five years of a 15-year sentence for aggravated assault of an aggravated a sexual assault of a young woman in West Texas. Now, this was already his second parole. The first was for a double rape. So, like I said, lovely guy, right? Let's just let him out. He sounds like a great candidate. So, as part of his parole agreement, he was allowed to move to the small town of Hawkins, Texas in East Texas. He agreed that he would go and live there with his mother and his sister. I'm sure they were thrilled, too, by the way. Most people didn't know him, and they weren't aware of his presence in the community. 
Now, of course, he said that he would follow the rules of his parole. He'd get a job, he'd check in, he'd stay out of trouble. But I'm sure you've already figured out that that's not what happened or otherwise we wouldn't be here today. And I'm sure you won't be surprised when I tell you that McFadden wasn't a rule follower. So on May 4th, 1986, 18-year-old Suzanne Harrison and 20-year-old Gina Turner went to meet their friend Brian Boone at Lake Hawkins. All three of these kids were good kids. They were honor students. They were involved in their community. Anyone you ask would tell you what great kids they were. Just cream of the crop of this small Texas town. Gina and Brian, of course, had already graduated from high school and were attending college. And Suzanne was going to attend A&M in the fall after she graduated from high school. Now, the friends had planned to take a cruise around the lake and hang out. Lake Hawkins was a popular hangout spot for the kids in the Hawkins area. And most locals called it the point. Y'all, I promised to get my sniffles under control. I'm sorry. When the three friends didn't return home on time, none of their parents were immediately concerned. They all figured that they got caught up talking and they'd be home soon. But the longer they waited, the more worried they became. Now, Jerry McFadden had also liked to hang out around the lake at the point. He liked to camp near there. The same day the three friends disappeared, it was reported to a police officer that a wild-haired, tattooed man had approached a couple at the lake earlier that evening and asked for money in a quick sexual encounter. The man pulled out a weapon, but he finally let the couple go when they convinced him that they had no cash. The couple reported this to the authorities, and so soon they were looking for Jerry already. Now, a few hours after Suzanne, Gina, and Brian failed to show up, their families were worried. They knew this was not like them. It was one thing to be a little bit late, but not hours. So Brian's brother went out and started looking, and he found his brother's abandoned truck not far from where the couple reported being held at gunpoint by the wild-haired man. See what I'm telling you, everyone? And I'll post some pictures on Instagram so you can see. He is. He's a wild-haired, crazy-eyed guy. He would be frightening to be approached by. I can't even imagine. Gina and Suzanne's cars were also found, and their purses and other belongings were still inside. A search was launched, and people reported seeing the missing friends with a large, scruffy man in a blue and white vehicle. Possibly could have been either a Chevy Blazer or a Ford Bronco. The next day, Suzanne's body was found at a remote roadside park. She had been raped and then strangled with her own underwear. She had been beaten so badly that her family wasn't able to immediately identify her. Authorities finally, when her her aunt and uncle actually were the ones who had to come and identify her because her parents just couldn't do it. And the authorities said, well, do you think you would recognize the watch she was wearing? And they showed it to her aunt and uncle and her aunt said that she, yes, that was her. So not long after 
Suzanne was found, police actually stopped Jerry McFadden. He was driving the blue and white vehicle. And they arrested him and jailed him in Wood County for the attack on the couple at the lake. And he was also, at this point, the prime suspect for Suzanne's murder and the disappearances of Brian and Gina. Now, for five days, people searched for Brian and Gina by foot, horseback, and with off-road vehicles. They finally found Gina and Brian's bodies near Orr City, which is about eight miles from the roadside park where Suzanne had been found. They'd both been shot and thrown into a ditch. McFadden was then formally charged with capital murder for Suzanne's death and was transferred from Wood County to Upshur County, where he was denied bond. Now, when he first arrived at the jail, McFadden behaved himself. He followed the rules, played nice, he avoided all conflict. When they brought him in, he didn't resist being fingerprinted or photographed. He let them do their search. He was fine. But he wasn't fooling any of the jail staff. They knew to stay on guard, and they had all heard why he was there. Rosalie Williams was a dispatcher and a detention officer when McFadden was brought in to the Upshur County Jail. She was 24 years old at the time. Now, McFadden spent most of his days quietly staring out the window, and for the longest time, she didn't think anything about it. She just thought he was trying to get through it, and she was polite to him when she needed to talk to him. She was respectful, but for the most part, they didn't have a lot of conversation. But one day, he decided to tell Rosalie that his favorite pastime was snooping and that he liked snooping on her. He told her he'd been watching her every day. He knew when she came to work. He knew where she parked. He knew what kind of car she drove. He knew where she liked to park in the parking lot, and he knew what time she left every day. Now, obviously, this creeped her out. On July 9th, McFadden decided that he was tired of following the rules, and he started complaining early that morning that he wanted to make a phone call. But there had been no one there available to let him make his call. So, of course, this only agitated him more. So by the time Rosalie got to work that afternoon, he was done. He was in no mood and his true colors were really starting to show. Now, finally, the sergeant on duty arrived and he was able to let McFadden make his call. Rosalie was down the hall. I guess that's how, what you'd say in the jail cells at her workstation. Now, she um, looked up noticed that the officer had gone to open McFadden's cell and was going to take him for the call. But when they started walking towards her, she realized that McFadden was behind the sergeant. And she knew that was a no-no. Immediately her radar went off. She knew something was wrong because they had all been trained to walk behind prisoners. Never let them walk behind you. As she was watching, she saw McFadden's right arm raise up and he hit the officer in the head multiple times with some kind of a metal object and knocked him down. He then took Rosalie hostage. He had the officer's gun and he took her to her car at gunpoint. Now they got into her car 
And he tried to drive away, but at first he couldn't get out of the parking lot because she had a standard shift vehicle and he didn't know how to drive a standard shift. So he reached over and grabbed her and threw her into his lap and made her get them out of the parking lot. Now, once they got out of the parking lot, he pushed her back over into the passenger seat and he started driving. But by now he was already agitated. The helicopters were flying overhead and the police were already searching. Sirens could be heard and he was crazed. She said that all she could remember doing was remembering all of the reports that they had read about him. That is all about his violent temper and how he liked to attack young women. So she said the whole time she just tried to stay calm and be compliant and talk soothingly to him to try to keep him as calm as possible. But his erratic behavior caught up with them and he quickly lost control of the car and they crashed into some trees. Now, by this time he drug her out of the car and towards the woods and drug her through and drug her through the woods. He drug her through the brush, through the water, through the briars. He was, it, it didn't matter. He was completely unfazed by all of it. Rosalie said that she was exhausted. He just kept dragging her. But she said he was, he, he it just, nothing seemed to bother him. He was just on a mission to get away. He kept telling her that they were going to give him the needle and he had to get away. Now, he didn't even notice that he was barefoot. It He was bleeding. He was cut. But still, they kept going. Now, and the whole time they were running, Rosalie could hear the helicopters, so she felt some comfort knowing that the police were searching for them, and she thought surely they would be found. Now, after they had walked and run and she'd been drugged, she wasn't sure how far, they come. They came up on a railroad track, and there was a train passing by, and he tried to convince her to jump into a moving boxcar that was, that was going pretty slow, and she refused. She said, no way. So he convinced her to hide in an idle box car that was parked on the sidetrack. So they did. Now they clammed inside to hide and Rosalie fell asleep. She was so exhausted. Well, when she woke up, it was pitch black and she couldn't see anything. And at first she panicked, but McFadden said, I'm here. We're in the box car. And, and she said he was surprisingly nice to her. In fact, she said she kind of got her wits about her. And so she said, please, please, Jerry, can you just get me some water? I need some water. I'm so thirsty. I'm, I'm worn out. And to her surprise, he agreed. So when he left the boxcar, she knew this was going to be her chance to get away. So she tried to stand, but her legs were numb from sitting. So she was trying to stand, get her bearings. And then she heard a dog barking. And then she heard... McFadden screaming and yelling, and it was obvious that the dog was attacking him. So she knew that this was her chance. She made her break for it. She jumped out of the boxcar and she ran. She ran as far as she could and she found a home that was nearby. Now she didn't even knock. She ran straight into the front door and the family was sitting there watching TV. They immediately recognized her from the TV, from all the news reports about her being kidnapped. But the family didn't have a phone. So the father agreed to stand guard while the son went to the next house over to call the police. 
Now, Rosalie, when the police arrived to get her, she asked if she could please go on the radio. And she went out over the waves to tell law enforcement that this is Rosalie and I am safe. Thank you. Now, the police went on air and they told all the residents in town to stay inside and secure their homes while he was on the loose. They searched for him first in the alley where he had been attacked by the dog, but they couldn't find him. They didn't know it, but he had found a vacant house and was hiding out. Now, at this point, FBI, state troopers, Texas Rangers, uh, local law enforcement, everyone was looking for him. It's estimated that there were over a thousand police officers searching for him at this time. Well, while he was in there, he found a straight razor and decided he was going to start shaving off his beard to make him less recognizable. But a Collin County SWAT member noticed movement inside the vacant house. So they just surrounded, they surrounded the vacant home. It took a while, but finally they were able to go in and get him. Now at this point, he had half a shaven face from trying to get his beard off. He was dirty, covered in cuts and scratches and blood from his time running through the forest. He was barefoot and he still was wearing the shorts that he had on when he escaped from the jail. But he didn't even put up a fight. He raised his hands and said, here I am. They took him in and said that he was surprisingly quiet on the ride back to the jail. Now, McFadden was convicted of Suzanne's rape and murder and sentenced to death. At the time of the trial, the jury only had to, de to deliberate for 35 minutes and they came back with a death penalty for him. He was never tried for Gina and Brian's murders. So technically, and in the eyes of law enforcement, their murders are still unsolved. Their murders are still unsolved. But in the court of public opinion, everyone believes that Jerry McFadden is guilty of their murders also. Now, attending the trial was, of course, all three of the victims' families. Brian's family was there, Gina's family was there, and Suzanne's family was there. And they all said they were pleased with the verdict and pleased with the outcome that he was going to receive the death penalty. On the other hand, Mc, Jerry McFadden's mother and sister were there. And I have to backtrack a little bit because I did not mention at the beginning of the episode that before Jerry decided to go on his lifelong crime spree, he was actually married. He got married when he was 19 to a girl who was 15. And they had two children, but they ended up being divorced because she couldn't put up with his bad behavior. Now, his daughter from that marriage, who was a teenager at this point, also attended the trial. And Jerry's sister and his daughter actually pleaded with the court to not give him the death penalty. But Jerry's lawyer said the one good thing he did was not accept life in prison. But 
he also would never admit to being the person who killed all three of of the friends and then of course beat and raped Suzanne um I thought it was also interesting that McFadden's defense attorney Bernard Solomon who had been practicing law for more than 40 years said that Jerry was a true sociopath he said he had no conscience about him whatsoever and he also said that he never let him get behind him the whole time they were together. Now, he said that uh, Jerry's family said that they thought his problem stemmed from an accident that happened when he was a child. He was accidentally struck in the head with a baseball bat. And they said after that, he was never the same. And I think about that. How many times have you heard and some other story about a serial killer or some violent offender that they had some trauma to the head and after that they were never the same. But it was reported that McFadden was eerie in the courtroom. He would sit and just quietly gaze around the courtroom, no emotion on his face, nothing fazed him, nothing ruffled him. His lawyer also said that he was quiet and kind of antisocial. Um, and I think that's really interesting. The prosecutor even, um, was quoted as saying that he truly believed that Jerry McFadden hated women. He said he sat there day after day with that passive docile expression on his face, like nothing mattered. But he noticed when one of the young female court reporters walked in that even in the middle of the trial, his facial expressions changed dramatically and that it was as if a look of rage came over him and all just because this young woman walked into the room. He said that he truly believed he hated women and that was where all of these violent crimes stemmed from. Now, the families, Jerry's victims, the families did come when he was executed and most of them did not go in to watch, but Brian's brother did go in to watch and later was quoted as saying that he was just completely gutless, but true to his nature, Jerry let them insert the needles into his arm and he never said a word. He was executed in 1999, like I said, by lethal injection. He requested a BLT sandwich with pickles and onions and french fries and a pint of butter pecan ice cream and a Coke for his last meal. And um, like I said, he never said a word. Now, um, Jerry's lawyer actually, after his death, tried to get it overturned and say that there was someone else present at the murder besides him. He didn't act alone. But no one has ever been identified over the years. And no one has ever challenged this. It was just his one. It was just his attorney. But just recently, um, DNA results were also tied to a 1979 cold case from Oregon 
of the rape and murder of a 20-year-old woman named Anna Lavaca. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Um, that tied Jerry to it too. So this has been his thing all along. I don't know why his attorney tried to take some of the spotlight off of him. Maybe he just felt like he needed to. But as far as Oregon, when he had been paroled, he took a two-day trip, murdered this poor girl on one of his, I'm sorry, let me make a little more sense there. So in another instance where he was paroled, he took a trip, murdered this poor 20-year-old woman, and then went back to Texas where he went back to prison and then, of course, was paroled again when he committed the murders of Brian, Gina, and Suzanne. So this is his, this was his routine. I mean, he truly was an animal. So thank you for listening to me today. And um, please remember to rate, subscribe, and tell a friend. Telling your friends to listen helps more than anything else. You can also find me on Instagram at Texas True Crime Pod. Or you can email me at Texas True Crime Podcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you and I will see you next time.